following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. We need you so badly. We come before you and we declare our dependence on you. We come to your word with needy hearts that say, God, feed us. We come to you with broken hearts in need of repairing. We come to you with our rebellious, sin-filled lives that need Jesus Christ's blood to cover us. We come by the blood this morning to your throne, knowing that you accept us only because of Jesus Christ. May we worship you today in spirit and truth, and may the preaching of your word go out and bring you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read, I'm going to read Mark 8, 27 through 9, 1 is where we're at. But I'm going to read it together. I'll read, you follow along. I'll use this thing. I'm not good at it yet. I'm trying. Here we go. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling to the crowd, excuse me, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So where have we been? Last week, we started into this section, uh, starting with verse 27 through 30, chapter 8, 27 through 30. This week, we're going to go into the second part, 31 through 33. Next week, we're going to attempt to finish up with 34 through 9-1. Next week, we'll practically preach itself. It's just so hard-hitting, and you'll kind of understand once we get there. Um, again, this is one large teaching section, though. I want us to remember this. When, what we read here is probably a lesson Christ is sitting down, Jesus is sitting down with his, his followers, his disciples, and teaching this larger lesson. Now, because I am finite and not good at explaining everything, I'm going to take it and split it into three. Last week we did one. This week we're doing two. Next week we'll finish up in the third part of this little sermon or this teaching session. So where we were last week? Um, Last week, we observed Jesus asking disciples about his identity. He said, who do people say that I am? They said, John the Baptist, Elijah, maybe one of the prophets. You're incredible. Everyone thinks it. 
And Jesus says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? Peter, against all odds, and all the things that could possibly come of saying something like this, says, you're the Christ. I think most of you understand how important that phrase is, uh, especially to our understanding of who Jesus is. But briefly, if you'll allow me for a moment to explain to you how important it is to Mark's gospel, his presentation of Jesus Christ. This confession, when Peter says, you are the Christ, is the hinge that the whole book turns on. The beginning is all leading up to it. You know, think about this together. Everything before it leads up to this confession. Everything that helps, excuse me, everything after helps define it and helps understand what he's saying when he says, you are the Christ. Leading up to this point, the disciples have specifically asked the question, who is this? One with authority and power and teaching. Who is this? They're trying to figure out who is this guy. All that Jesus has done up to this point demands an answer. His miracles, his divine attributes, his, able to forgive, his ableness to forgive sins, his Lord of the Sabbath-ness. Right? They are all demanding some sort of an answer. Who is this guy? They all lead to the need for someone to say it. And Peter, he says it. Yes, you are the Christ. Boom. At this point, Jesus turns. It's like he actually almost turns and starts to go a different way with his teaching. It will completely change from here on out. Not that he's denying what he's done before, but now he's taking them in a new direction. The confession's been made. The statement's been made. Jesus says, don't tell anyone about it. And now he's going to turn and his teaching is going to completely change. Before Peter's confession, Jesus displays great power. But afterwards, weakness seems to be a constant theme that's coming up. So think about those. Power coming. You know, we, we talked about the storm. We talked about casting demons out. All these different things. You guys remember as we go through this in Mark, the beginning, it's all about the power of this guy. And they're trying to figure out, who is this? After the confession, it's literally like we turn around and now he's like talking about weakness and suffering and death and all these hard things. We did talk about last week a little bit, where is he headed from now? Where, where is he headed? It's okay to shout it out. Jerusalem. He's headed towards Jerusalem. What's going to happen in Jerusalem? He's going to die. His death on the cross. Weakness becomes a theme. All of his, his teaching up to this point has forced him to deal with the identity. But now, his teaching will force them to understand how the identity will express itself, what it means for him to be the Christ. They understand. They believe it. They say, you're the Christ. Now remember, Peter's kind of acting as a spokesman, representative, and he's, and he's speaking on all their behalf. They are in agreement. You're the Christ. We don't have any other answer. However, do they really understand what that means, what the Messiah, what the Christ, what the anointed one, if you are here last week, we talked about that a little bit. That those, all those words are synonymous, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. That's who, Paul, that is who Peter is saying that Jesus is. And when he says that, he is bringing a lot of baggage with him. Because they had a specific understanding. And I won't cover all of it, but remember, the Jews are thinking that someone mighty and someone powerful and someone who's going to display great political power and military force upon all the nations, specifically Rome, around them, so he will come in. He's, they're looking for someone who will do all of that. 
Again, feel free to go back and read this again and again, and you're going to see that the expectations are there. Today, we're going to follow Mark's outline. He has a very simple outline. And if you're writing down notes, this is it. The first thing is Jesus' teaching. The second thing is going to be the disciples' rebuke. The third thing will be Jesus' rebuke back to the disciples. That's the path we're going to walk today. All right. So, um, verse 31, Peter has identified that Jesus is the Christ before this. But now, does he actually understand what he's saying? Does he understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah? If he did, think about this for a minute. If he did understand that, the book of Mark would be a lot shorter. It would have probably gone to chapter 9 or 10. That's it. <laughs> they would have wrapped it up real quick. All done. Close the book. And probably the disciples could have written it in a much more earthly, fantastic sort of way, which would have been the breaking, you know, breaking the clouds apart and seas becoming all kinds of crazy colors. And, you know, apocalyptic type stuff. And that's the way they would have written the book. But that's not what happens. Who's the king of kings? Who gets to decide what's going to happen? Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, the one who rules, he will decide how the story ends. Thus, we're turning and he's going to start teaching about something else to explain to them what Messiah actually meant. That's where we're going today. They didn't get it. The Messiah, the king over all, he will set his own agenda. So Jesus turns from Peter's confession to instruct them to tell them to tell no one. And now, so he tells them, don't say anything to anyone, and I'll tell you why. And he's getting there. He'll begin to teach them about his road and what it's going to look like as they go to Jerusalem together. So the first thing, Jesus' teaching, this is point number one, if you will. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Pause for a minute here. We need to see something here before we start explaining all this stuff. Jesus was just declared to be who? Messiah or Christ. Those, any of those three choices are correct. Messiah, the Christ, or the anointed one. He's declared to be this. But what name does he call, look, look in your Bibles. What name does he call himself right here when he starts this teaching in 31? Son of Man. Now, have we seen this name come up before in Mark's gospel? Does anyone remember? It's okay. Chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 10 and verse 28. This is what's going to happen. Chapter 10, I mean, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 10. Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. Chapter 2, verse 28. The Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. Those are the only two times that we're seeing it up to this point, that he's used this term. So in those two ways, how has he used it to that point? Well, maybe he's not saying he's the Messiah, but he's certainly hinting at some kind of strong language that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins on earth. No one has the authority to forgive sin on earth. No one. That's a huge shock. That arrests their thinking, whoa, this I can't do that. But he says the Son of Man can do that. And the Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. Both these things are language that are hinting at something bigger. So he's progressively coming through this and teaching. But what does the Jew hear when he hears son of man? You and I don't understand this. I don't. Maybe some of you have thought this through or studied it out. Son of man to me I didn't understand except maybe I think I heard it in Narnia. Like I think uh, the son of Adam or son of man, something like that. 
how does Mark use it? That's much, much more interested. I like C.S. Lewis, by the way, but I'm more interested right now in Mark, why he's using this and, and how the Old Testament will use this term. Um, he's using it to describe someone who is not like every other human. And there's another place in Scripture, there's several, but there's one specific one that their, their minds would have been drawn to right away, which is Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read it, though, and I want you to listen here and see what you can pick up from their thought. This is what you're thinking about when I'm going to read this. You're thinking about the description of what the Son of Man is, what he does, what he is like. All right, let me read this to you. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's a person, by the way, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So when they think of Son of Man, when Jesus used the term Son of Man, some of their thoughts are going back to stuff like this. And they're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, Son of Man, he's going to come and destroy kingdoms and rule the whole earth. And he's going to be the king. It'll be great. But we don't see the rest of this pan out because we're, we're, we're trying to get to a point where they're, they're trying to understand what Jesus said. Because what he's saying is not matching up with what they think about Daniel 7. Let's go back to Mark. Jesus is ready to start teaching. And his topic, I would call it this, the definition of messiahship. What it means to be the messiah. Not just, yeah, you got, the, you got the name right, good job. What does it mean to be the Messiah? Peter has it nailed, by the way. The disciples, they nailed it. That's, they got it right. Jesus is the Messiah. But, do they have, like I asked before, do they have any idea what it means? Now Jesus will start to talk about it. We already know the answer is no. They don't quite get it. They don't know what it means. They already have an incorrect understanding. But that's because we already read the rest of the scripture. And Let me take it back to the story, though. Jesus is saying that he will, he will, he will suffer. Let's look at the three particular spots a little closer. He talks first about, first of all, let me take a little pause. This is a prediction or a prophecy here. So he's looking to the future and telling them that something is going to happen. Just a little side teacher type note thing that we ought to remember. Prophecy and prediction is not for the sake of us getting in on the secret before it happens. That's not what prophecy and prediction is about. Rather, he tells them this up front so that when it happens, they know there's only one way this could ever have happened. And that's because Jesus said this would happen and it's God ordained that this is being fulfilled. It's not just to let you and me on a like, little secret, like have a club. But rather, he is putting down beforehand so that they know when it happens... Jesus spoke of this. This was going to happen. He said it would happen. That's what prediction and prophecy is specifically about. Okay, so first, the first part. Jesus says that he will suffer many things. This is actually a very general statement, right? I mean, there's not bloody, gory details because we know what's going to happen, but they don't know what's going to happen. Remember, this is new for them. So he just says, the Messiah will suffer. Very general. Uh, it's startling enough. The Messiah? Suffering? You know, like it, that's, that's, that's a lot for them to handle. So he says the, the Messiah will suffer. The Son of Man will suffer. 
Second, he teaches, he goes on to say that he will be rejected by three groups of people. The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Who are these groups and why are they important here? That's very important for us to understand, especially as we talk about prediction and prophecy. These are the religious elite in the day. These people, these three groups made up what's called the Sanhedrin. You've probably heard of this. If you know anything about the drama, who's the Sanhedrin and why are they important? What are they going to do? They're going to condemn him to crucifixion. They're condemn him to death, send him to Rome. Rome is going to crucify him. Technicalities. But they're the ones who condemn him. And specifically, as they say here, reject him. They have been the ones to step up and they reject the Messiah. So it, I love how this one commentator said it. I want us to think about this. It's not humanity at its worst that will crucify the Son of God. But humanity at its absolute best, its pinnacle, Jesus will be arrested with official warrants. He'll be tried and he'll be executed by the world's envy of jurisprudence, the Jewish Sanhedrin and Rome. I mean, this was no accident. This was an angry mob of anarchists. Oh, no, Jesus died. Whoops. No, this is huge. This is, all, this is planned out. This is done by the Sanhedrin and Rome. They will crucify him. This was the plan. This is all within the plan of God. It's not coincidence that Jesus died this way. So the third part of this verse, Jesus says that he will be killed and after three days rise again. He'll be rejected. Oh, excuse me. He'll suffer. He'll be rejected by this group, the Sanhedrin. And then he says he'll be killed and rise the third day. This is by far the most shocking piece that the disciples are hearing. What? He will be killed. Uh, is he really saying that the Messiah will die? No, he will be killed. He will be murdered, actually. Very, he doesn't say, I'll die, I'll pass away. He will be killed. He doesn't mince words, but tells his disciples that he will be put to death. And this will not be the only time that he says this, either. There are three specific predictions that we, we see throughout the end of Mark here. This one's 831. Then we're going to move to 931. It does the same thing. talks about his suffering and his death to come. And then the next chapter over, 1033 and 34. Again, Jesus is going to tell them, I'm here to die. I'm coming to die. I'm coming to suffer and die. The Messiah, the Son of Man, will come and die. But I, let's stop for a minute and think about this. What basis does Jesus have to say these things? What do we know from... And the, big picture here. What do we know from the Old Testament that would possibly line up with the Son of Man, someone like this suffering and full of death and by his stripes we are healed type language? What did Isaac read this morning? He read a passage on the suffering servant. Isaiah 52 at the end of 52 and into 53. Actually I think he's got it right here. Yeah. It's very long. I felt bad for him. It was a lot to read. But he, he read something that we, we talk about as the suffering servant passage. This is someone who came and by his stripes we are healed. He was bruised for our transgression and he was crushed. It talks about this over and over again. It's a killing. Someone being killed. However, it's a, I mean, this is a pretty good source for Jesus to talk about this. Uh, this is where Jesus is getting this. Let's stop there for a minute. 
But this still doesn't make sense to the disciples. That doesn't help them. (laughs) They are like, no, no, no. No one, no one is connecting the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 with the Messiah. When when, when scholars, and especially Jewish scholars, are thinking about this, they're not thinking, oh yeah, the suffering servant, the Messiah. They're the one and the same person. No one is thinking that. That's why it's such a like a disgusting thing to them to think that Jesus, would, the Messiah, would die, would suffer many things. you got to remember, in, in Peter's thought, he, he is, like, he is, or, or, and the disciples, they've seen him do all these incredible things. How could he die? How could he suffer? And yet, this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. But that's not all. I want to take a little, little break. And all this death and dying and suffering and clue in on the little last part. And we'll get back to the death and glory and goth stuff in a second. He says and he will rise again. Remember, there's a bigger story. Remember, everyone, be in on this. There's a bigger story of where he's going. It's not ending in like death and that's it. He was killed and that's it. And we're so sad. No. And three days later he will rise again. Because he is the Messiah. Because he is the King of Kings. Because he sets the rules and has power over creation, over death, over hell. He is the Christ. So don't forget that. Go back. Um, He will win. Don't get him wrong. He's going to win. Unfortunately, the disciples have no idea what he's talking about. They're totally clueless about this. Um, they, they, they can hardly un, like digest the fact that he's going to suffer and die, let alone rise from the dead. This is a totally new concept to them, that the Messiah would do something like this. So lastly, in this first part, all right, so we've talked about that he will suffer. The Son of Man will suffer. He will be rejected by the Sanhedrin. He will be killed and that he will rise again. But look at the beginning of verse 32. This is very important. He says, he said this plainly. In your version, in the, in, the, in the copy you have in front of you, he said this plainly. Or you'll see some of your texts might say he said this boldly or confidently. There's two things we need to understand about this little statement here. First is that the better translation or a better understanding for us, when they would use the word plainly or like this is how it was, boldly, confidently, I'm ready to say this right out front. It's bold and confident out there. The next thing we need to understand about this is that it's, it's actually bringing up a contrast. Remember, there's a hinge. The fact that he's the Christ. How did he talk about being the Christ? How did he silence Peter? He said, don't tell anyone about me. But then going forward, talking about his death and his, his burial, resurrection, that kind of stuff, like the, especially the suffering and the death, rejection, he speaks plainly or confidently or boldly. What? Why would he not speak about the good stuff? Why Say, shh, don't tell anyone about this. And then when he talks about the other stuff, now we're going to get into rejection, we're going to get into um, death, you know, suffering. Everyone listen. Ready to tell everyone about this. Think about this hinge. Think about we're going a different way. And the hinge is the problem. That the Christ is not understood. Peter doesn't understand, and the disciples, they don't understand who this guy is and what he does. They understand he's the Messiah. But what he does, they don't understand it. So much so that he's going to teach them a different way than they know for what he's like. So back to Peter's little, little brain here for a second. 
well, let me say something else. He wants people to hear this. He knows that this will be the way that the title Messiah is used. If it's used this way, and people are going to apply all of their selfish human fantasies to what he will do for them. And who will it be about then? It'll be all about them. And he knows that. And he's like, You're, it's not about you. In fact, so much, get this, the Messiah is going to die. He's going to go this way of the cross. So if people hear about the suffering and the death, it could be a game changer for those that are following throughout the desert, right? Back to Peter's brain again. This is ludicrous. He is, there's no way the Messiah can suffer. Certainly someone who can forgive sins on earth, someone who can determine what is permissible on the Sabbath, someone who commands demons to retreat, someone who calms raging seas. Certainly this type of Messiah is in no danger of death or suffering. If he can walk on water, why, why doesn't he just, like when people are running to kill him, walk out onto the water, you know, and stay out there? If he can calm seas and say, stop, why doesn't he just bring a cloud down and stop everyone around him? There's no reason that he should be suffering, no reason for his death. It doesn't make sense to them. So Peter's, he can't quite get it. So he's trying to really get it. Kind of like I'm trying to speak to you right now. Peter comes alongside. This is the second part, by the way. If you're taking notes, we've gone into the second part. We're getting through. The disciples rebuke. Peter, on behalf of the, the group, comes alongside, puts his arm around Jesus. He kind of takes him over here. And he rebukes him. Yeah, he rebukes the Messiah. Peter, a fisherman, rebukes the Messiah about who he is. Does anyone see the absurdity here? Anyone get it? Peter thinks he knows more than Jesus does about being the Messiah. So he's like, hey, hey, come over here. i got to bring him back down a little bit. Listen, the suffering stuff, wait a second, you're the Messiah. Let me show you in Daniel, all right? Like he's bringing out his Torah, like and showing everyone, like this is, this is what's actually supposed to happen, Jesus. He brings him aside lovingly. He's so gentle to Jesus, you know? He brings him aside and he's like, yo, sorry, not yo, Jesus, this is not what you're supposed to do. Let me tell you what you're supposed to do. That second point is nice and brief and short because... Jesus can't handle it. Jesus will not be taken aside by anyone. If I've said it a couple times, I'm not, I'm not asking forgiveness. I'm going to say it more and more and more. He's the king of kings. He doesn't get taken aside by Peter. He tells Peter what to do. Jesus hears Peter with a gentle but firm hand. He grabs his arm, takes it off his shoulder. He turns so that the rest of the disciples can see him. And he rebukes them. Notice the same word for Peter doing what he thought was right to, to Jesus. Both words, rebuke. This is an idea about them feeling so strongly about the ideologies, the philosophy of what's happening here, that they're going to rebuke one another. Not like reminding him, hey, get back on point. No, he's actually like, you can't do this. You need to do this. Jesus, the other way, brings him back. Looks at the disciples, says, no, you can't do this. Let me tell you what's up. Let me explain to you who the Messiah is. Notice that Mark uses this word, he's the king of kings, he will do the talking. He says something that no one is expecting. He says, 
get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Anyone can see how strong a statement is. If we, use, if we call people Satan or the devil today, you get it. It's not a nice term to call someone. Now, why? Why would Jesus call him Satan? Um, maybe Peter has like a reddish complexion, two small horns over his temples, a little forked tail. No, I don't think so. Maybe this is, um, oh, maybe Satan has possessed Peter. It's possible, and he's saying, get out of him, Satan, something like that, get behind me. The problem is that the context says nothing about that, so that's a bad idea. The other could it be like some sort of gross exaggeration, and he could be saying, like, characterizing people, Peter so badly that he would call him Satan and get behind me. Again, I don't think the context really supports that. I think the best way for us to understand why he would call him this is actually in the next part of the verse. What does it say? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's thoughts are not in line with God's thoughts. He's not thinking on the same plane. He's confused about who the Messiah is. Not confused, he's like against it, actually. He's totally against it. This doesn't mean that Satan has possessed Peter, but rather that Peter's thoughts are against the plans of God. That's a bad place to be. He is actually the enemy of God at this point. Because I'll tell you something. You see that there's a master plan. There's a bigger plan on all of this. That master plan, remember I talked about like looking at the big picture? There's a bigger master plan here, and you've got to get this, Peter. I can't get there without this. I can't get to the glory without paying for your sins. Without doing this, if it were not so, if Christ had not died, there would be no forgiveness of sins. There would be no peace with God. There would be, <laughs> Satan and death would not be defeated. All would be lost. In light of this reality, we start to see that the Christ's death was not only what was going to happen, but it was the only way that it could happen. Suffering and death were essential. It was his plan all along. So anyone, can, anyone who would try to go against this plan, or in this case, try to prevent this plan, as Peter is trying to do, they are seen as an adversary. If you know anything about the name Satan, Hebrew, the most closest thing to that idea is adversary. He is saying, you are opposed to what I'm doing. Get behind me. I have to go forward down this road to Jerusalem. I have to. I have to. The funny thing is he's even saying that for your sake I have to. If I don't, you die and go to hell. I've got to do this. Get out of my way, Satan. Peter's thoughts on the Christ. <laughs> Either the things of man or things of God. Those are the two options that he, Mark kind of shows us here. That Jesus says, your, your thoughts that you're setting your mind on are things of God or things of man. Peter's thoughts on the Christ, which would be the first one, they're the things of man. They're so much at odds with God's thoughts, though, the things of God, that Peter and the disciples are acting as spokesmen for the ultimate enemy, the adversary, Satan. And so, this harsh rebuke that we're seeing him do to, to Peter and the disciples is yet another part of Jesus' teaching about who he is. The disciples must understand how important it is for the Messiah to go down this road. Two points of application. I'm going to wrap up and be done here. First one is, you don't know it all. I don't know it all. Take that to heart, please. 
We think we have it figured out. I think I have it figured out so many different times. These guys thought they had it figured out. So much so that Peter would gently rebuke the Savior, the anointed one, that he was wrong about something. We are wrong. Our thoughts are not God's thoughts. My first application is let us align ourselves or trash our own thoughts and listen to him and humbly come to him and say, teach me. Repent of our own thoughts and our own wisdom and our own humanness and allow him to teach us what the truth is about any subject. Specifically this one, of course, but on anything. Pray for humility. That we might be people of humility. We'd be humble before our creator and before our fellow man. That we would realize that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. The second thing, there's a master plan. There's a big picture. Do not forget the wonderful power of the cross. Remember that we are fools to the world. That doesn't sit well, I know. Good. You have eternity to live it out. Don't worry about what people think about you. The, the foolishness of the cross. People will think that if you're committed to Jesus Christ that you're a fool. People that they come, maybe even some that are here, thinking, why do these people gather every week to do something like this? Why do they sing and cry and worship as though he's real? He is real. And without the blood shed of Jesus Christ, we can't meet. There's no reason for us to meet. We have nothing to look forward to without the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. So glory in the power of the cross. When we sing that song, you ought to be, it should shake your being. And I know sometimes it doesn't. I get that. I'm talking about like when we sit down and we see what we believe and we understand from a big picture what God is doing, we say thank you for what you did on the cross for us. You have bought our eternal salvation. That is what we must remember. That we ought to glory not in our things, not in good times, not in, yeah, we can glory in looking down the way when Jesus will come again. But we ought to glory in the cross because it's the way of salvation. It is the only way that we can get there. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We have nothing without him. May you teach our hearts. May you train us to listen to you. May we open our eyes and see the truth. Thank you so much for loving us, Lord, and I pray that you would help us like the disciples to start seeing clearly, that you start opening our eyes and we would start to see that you are the Christ. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.